Well, good afternoon, and thank you for joining us again. Um, we're continuing from where we were this morning, and I want to uh, go back. If you have your handout from this morning, I'd ask you to turn with me to number four. We were talking about comparing, and for the sake of those that may, may not have had a handout this morning, I do want to put this quote up again because uh, I want to share some points in this that will lend itself to what we're going to discuss um, first off this afternoon. And this is taken from Christian Education, page 85. The Bible is its own expositor. One passage will prove to be a key that will unlock other passages, and in this way, light will be shed upon the hidden meaning of the Word. Now, notice this part. This part is critical because it says, by comparing different texts, on the, treating on the same subject, viewing their bearing on every side the true meaning of the Scriptures will be made evident. I want to just underscore that point one more time by comparing different texts, treating on the same subject, viewing their bearing on every side, the true meaning of the Scriptures will be made evident. Now, I want you to consider that we had used some examples. Uh, We had earlier gone through the example of Matthew 7, 7, and we had seen that Matthew 7, 7 talks about asking God and it will be given. But we saw that when we look at other, ver- other passages in the Bible that talk about asking, you'll notice that there are many conditions, there are many other qualifications to receiving what you're asking for. Well, this is another example of looking at passages that are similar, but examining them from different sides. I'd like to ask you to open your Bibles this afternoon to Matthew 25, and I'd like you to look with me at verses 10 through 12. Matthew 25 verses 10 through 12, and we want to try to understand the, the simple practical application of this principle, looking at similar passages, uh, but viewing their bearing on, on, on every side. Matthew chapter 25, verse 10, notice it says, and while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they that were ready went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Afterward came also the other virgin, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. Now, I have to be honest. When I first studied this passage, one of the things that perplexed me was, okay, here is this bride, and there's a bridegroom. And why would it be that the bridegroom doesn't recognize the friends of the bride? You know, why why does he say to them, I don't know you, I know you not? And it perplexed me, but I realized that in the Bible, there is another passage that is very similar. It's found in Luke chapter 13. I'd ask you to turn there now, and I'd like you to notice something interesting. In Luke chapter 13, Luke 13, verse 25, and notice here this passage. Notice the similarities. Verse 25 says, when once the master of the house is risen up, and hath what? What does he do? Shut the door, okay? Hath shut to the door, and you begin to stand without, and to do what? Knock at the door, saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us. By the way, are there some similar elements between Matthew 25 and this passage, yes or no? Yeah, so we're, we're fulfilling the criteria of looking at passages dealing with similar things. So here we see a similar element, the knocking, the door outside. They're saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he shall answer and say unto you, I know you how? Not, I know you not from whence you are. Now, isn't this interesting? We have some of the very same components 
that we saw in Matthew 25. You've got a door, you've got people outside, you've got the people outside knocking, you have the people outside saying, open, open. And the person inside says the same thing. The person inside says, I don't know who you are. You know what's interesting though? Luke 13 gives us some additional information not found in Matthew 25. Please notice what it says here. In verse 26, it says, Then shall you begin to say, We have eaten and drunk in thy what? In thy presence. And thou hast taught in our what? Streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not from whence you are. Depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. Now let's pause here for a moment. Do you notice that you have almost the exact same things going on. In both stories, you have a door, you have knocking, you have the person outside saying, open. The person inside says, I don't know who you are. But what's interesting is that in Luke 13, the person actually says a reason why they think they should open the door. In Luke 13, the people outside, do you notice they said two things? And notice these two things that they said. In verse 26, they said, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence. Now, if you really look at this carefully, if you look at what the people are saying, it's telltale or it's enlightening to see what they are not saying. You see, they tell the person inside, they say to the person inside, they say, you know, open up, we've eaten and drunk in my presence. But do you notice what they're unable to say? They are unable to say, we have eaten and drunk with you. They can't say that. And so it's like saying, you know, oh, I was a potluck when you were there. Yeah, but there was a hundred other people there, isn't that right? So, you know, the, the, the issue that these people, they had a, we might say they had an association with Christians, but perhaps they never had an intimate connection with Christ. Notice what else they don't say. In verse 26, they also say, thou hast taught where? In our streets. Now, you know, this is interesting. Again, this, the ambiguity, or I should say the distance that's implied, because notice they are unable to say, we have sat at thy feet. They can't say that. And this is why the voice inside says to them, I what? I don't know you. You see, friends, when we look at these passages that are similar, sometimes the passages will shed perhaps more light on something that may not have been clear on things that were mentioned earlier. Okay, so that's just a technique. Again, uh, the Gospels afford many opportunities because they cover the same ground. This is a technique that you can use as you study the Bible for yourself. Technique number five is detail study. Let me share something with you from Signs of the Times, March 21 of 1906. Speaking of the Bible... She writes, this book, speaking of the Bible, contains nothing that is non-essential, nothing that has not a bearing upon our lives. How much of the Bible is unimportant? Nothing. Okay, everything is important. Now, let's see how that works when we, so one more statement, many a portion of Scripture which learned men pronounce a mystery or pass over as what? Unimportant is full of comfort and instruction to him who has been taught in the school of Christ. Let's use an example here. Luke 13. Let's look at verse 6. Luke 13, verse 6. He spake also this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, 
And he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. Then said he unto the dresser of his vineyard, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why cumbereth it the ground? And he answering said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also till I shall dig about and dung it. And if it bear fruit, well. And if not, then after that thou shalt cut it down. Now, one of the things that, that my personality tends to uh, naturally lean towards is I, I tend to look at the details of a passage. And really, when you study the Bible, it's always, since we know that nothing is unimportant, it's always important to pay attention to the details. If you read this parable carefully, you'll discover some unique things. The primary focus of the parable is a what? It's a fig tree. You notice that? But the location of the fig tree is interesting. Where is this fig tree planted? It's in a vineyard. But here's what else is interesting. How long is the fig tree in the ground? Okay, so it's in the ground for three years. Did you notice that the Bible specifies that? It says in verse 7, Behold, these three years I come seeking fruit on this fig tree. So we find the Bible actually specifies how long the fig tree is in the ground. Now, if you were a Bible student, it would be important for you to ask yourself, well, God mentions this, you know, in giving this parable, Jesus deliberately mentions the time frame. He mentions that it's in the ground for three years. But that's not all. Because notice now what the, Bible, what the Bible says next. It says, in verse 8, he answering and said unto him, Lord, let it alone this year also. So notice that the fig tree, after being in the ground for three years, is given how much more? One more year. If I asked you, what's the total amount of time the fig tree has given to it, what would you say? Four years. Now, that might seem insignificant, right? That might seem, that might seem almost, you know, non-noteworthy. But you, know, you see, friends, we know that when Jesus speaks, when the Bible was given to us, it was given to us deliberately. In other words, there was no haphazardness or randomness. God did not waste words. So the question we have to ask ourselves is, what's the significance of the details that have been given to us in this passage? One of the first things that we want to understand is that in a parable, these physical symbols are symbolic of something. You know, it's interesting that the first time the fig tree appears in the Bible is where? It's the Garden of Eden, isn't that right? So in the Garden of Eden, the fig tree was the tree that was used with its rich, you know, thick foliage, the, the leaves. They used those leaves as a what? Covering. So scripturally speaking, the fig tree sets a precedent of being associated with self-righteousness. Does that make sense? It was man's attempt at covering his own nakedness, which symbolically represents sinfulness. So what's interesting is that the fig tree, here we have this fig tree that's planted in a vineyard. Now, considering the, when you go through the Bible, you'll discover, you know, Jesus gave several parables. You know, a son, uh, a father sent his sons to go labor in his vineyard. Remember the parable of the 11th hour worker? Do you remember that one? Also to go work in the vineyard, right? In both of those parables, the vineyard represents the world. Well, what did God place in the middle of the world that was designed to bless the world? Or who did God place in the midst of the world to bless the world with its fruit? Ended up just keeping all of those blessings to itself and not giving back anything. Who is that ultimate epitome of self-righteousness? Who does it represent? It represents the nation of Israel, okay? Now, here's what's interesting. When you add this three years plus a year, how many days would that be when you examine that in Bible times?
time. How, much, how, many days, how many days is a biblical year? 360, right? So then two years would be 720, and then four years would be 1440, okay? Now, this is interesting because did you know that it is agreed upon by many scholars the date that the Israelites entered the promised land was 1407 B.C.? If you count, you might say that was the time that the tree was planted. If you count from 1407 B.C. and you count 1,440 days, or in Bible prophecy, a day equals a, a year, you end up in the year A.D. 34. You know why that's significant? Because that's when the tree was cut down. Isn't that right? And again, making a reference to the nation of Israel. Now, I know we would easily pass over a detail like that thinking, you know, three years, oh, that's, that's a figurative expression. Rather, God put that there for a reason. Here's another example, Matthew 13. Look with me at verse, well, okay, just for sake of time, let's go over to, to Mark chapter 14, and let's look at verse 51. Mark 14, verse 51 Now, I have to give you a little background of why I chose this example. (coughs) In school, we once had a speaker that came that challenged the the student body to to get as familiar with Scripture so that the day could come when you could preach on any passage of the Bible. And I remember that I laughed at that idea. I thought, that's foolish. You know, not every passage of Scripture has sermon-worthy material, (coughs) But in retrospect, in a conversation with another student, I said to him, do you really think that every story in the Bible is important? And I talked with him at length about one particular story. It was this one, Mark 14. The story in Mark 14 is an interesting story because in this story, you have a man that comes into the garden where Jesus was, and then people grab him, and he runs out of the garden naked. And I thought, now, why in the world would you want to preach a sermon about a man that runs away naked? And, you know, what, what, what would be the point of that? It's ironic, however, that in my foolish statement of saying, you know, you can't preach a sermon out of everything, as I began to look at this passage, it struck me that the way that the passage is written, it almost begs to teach some spiritual lessons. Let's look at this closely. Mark 14, look at verse 51. <clears throat> Mark 14, verse 51, the Bible says, And there followed him a certain young man, Uh, I'm sorry, having a linen cloth cast about his naked body. And the young men laid hold on him. And he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. Now, when I first read this passage, I thought, you know, what? why does the Bible have this story in it? Uh, And I'm sure some of you will know or are familiar that scholars tell us that this was John Mark. And the reason we believe that is because if you notice in the previous verse, verse 50, it says, and they all forsook him and fled. When it says all, now by the way, where are we right now? Does anybody know? Where does this story take place? Does anybody know? Okay, it's in the garden. Okay, I think I already said that. It's in the garden of Gethsemane. So this is on Thursday evening. Isn't that right? Thursday evening, garden of Gethsemane. There are basically three groups of people there in the garden that night. Am I right? Three groups of people. There's the enemies of Jesus. Is that right? The priests and the soldiers. Then there's the disciples. And then there's Jesus and this man. 
Okay, so maybe there's four. We could say four categories of people. Now, what's interesting is that in verse 50, it says they all forsook him and fled. That word all is describing a specific group of people. Who is that word all describing there? Just the disciples, okay? Because we know the priests and the Pharisees and the soldiers, they didn't leave. When it says they all forsook him and fled, it indicates that all the disciples were gone. So, in verse 51, when it says, and there followed him a certain young man, what can you tell me right away about this certain young man? He is not a what? He's not a disciple. That's the first thing we know. He's not a disciple. Now, how can I say, I'm going to make a statement, and someone tell me why I can say this. How can I say that this man is also not part of the group that came to trap Jesus? How do I know that? Because they grabbed him. Does that make sense? The, the mob grabbed him, not recognizing him as part of their own party. So obviously, he's not with them. So he's not a disciple, but he's also not one of the group that came to grab Jesus. Right away, there's a spiritual lesson here because I think you can see the certain young man in this story, the certain young man was not one of those people that left everything like the disciples to follow Jesus. At the same time, he was not one of the people that was intent on capturing or persecuting Jesus. He wasn't part of the mob. This man was somewhere in the middle. He was somewhere in between. There's a spiritual lesson in that, okay? But if you keep delving into this, it's interesting because notice what it says in verse 51. In verse 51, it says, there followed him a certain young man having a what? A linen cloth. Now, see, this is interesting. The Bible doesn't even tell us his name, but it even tells us what he's wearing. Did you notice that? I mean, the Bible goes into detail to tell us what he is wearing. Now, that's significant. Because remember, when the Bible gives us details, it's not without reason. So here we have a person, he's not a disciple, and he is not a, one of the persecutors of Jesus. The Bible says that he's wearing a linen cloth. Figuratively speaking, in Scripture, what does linen represent? Righteousness. You can go to Revelation chapter 19, and it talks about the fine linen is the righteousness of the saints. Isn't that right? So what we have here is we've got this symbol. By the way, Notice what else it says. It says he had a linen cloth in verse 51, and it says it was what? Cast about. Now, did you notice that? The Bible even tells us how it was worn. Do you get the idea that he was somewhat of a sloppy dresser? I mean, you know, the, the, the language of Scripture implies that because it doesn't say it was secured around his naked body. It doesn't say that. It said it was a cast about, almost as if this man heard that Jesus was captured, hastily threw on his clothes, and then ran to see where Jesus was. Okay? And so the Bible even goes to the length of telling us how he was dressed. That's significant, by the way. But it's also interesting that the Bible tells us, it tells us in this passage that his linen cloth was the only thing covering his nakedness. See, I, I want you to understand, the Israelites did wear undergarments, okay? So this was, the way that he was dressed was not normal. It was not typical. By the way, is it a spiritual truth that the only thing that can cover the sinfulness of our lives is the righteousness of Christ? Is that a spiritual truth, yes or no? Yeah, so again, that, that, that spiritual truth is, is uh, illustrated in the story of this man. The righteousness, the linen, was the only thing covering his naked body. Notice what happens, though. In verse 51, 
Now, in verse 51, the Bible says, and the what kind of men laid hold on him? The young men. By the way, do you remember that the man in our story, he is also a what? Young person. So this young man gets grabbed not by the aged priests, not by the hardened soldiers. He gets grabbed by the other what? Young men. Now, this is significant. If I was to preach this in a sermon, I would make the application that the greatest temptations that we face come from our own peers. In other words, the greatest danger in losing the righteousness of Jesus comes from those that we consider uh, of a similar age to us. Now, isn't that interesting? The Bible in this little description gives us so much information. By the way, notice what the choice he's left with now. So here he is. He has a linen cloth. It's cast about his naked body. And then the Bible says the young men lay hold on him. Now, let's think about this carefully now. I want you to think about this. What two choices does he have? He has two choices exactly. What are the two choices? Okay, if he lets them capture him, what does he get to keep? He gets to keep the, 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 the garment, isn't that right? He won't be naked. But by staying, what, will his, what, 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 what would his fate end up potentially being? Being suffering, suffering in some way, right? Okay. Now, if he, the other option he has is to do what? It's to run away. But if he runs away, what would happen? They grabbed onto his garment. So if he runs away, what's going to happen? He's going to run away how? Naked. Now, I want you to think about this. In every temptation, we have two choices. Isn't this true? Every temptation poses two choices. You can stay with Jesus and keep the righteousness, but it might mean suffering. Or you can leave the garment behind and escape suffering, but run away without the covering the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Isn't that true? There are only two options, and this is the exact condition that the man was in in this particular story. By the way, what does he end up doing? He runs away naked, okay? How often that is the case with young people. But interesting, just as an illustration of the importance of looking at the details of a passage to better understand what God's message or purpose for it in giving it to us was. Look with me at Genesis 6. Uh, I want to show you something. This was a sermon that I wrote a number of years ago. Uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 14 and I'd like you to look closely at this passage, verses 14 through 16. I want you to see if you notice anything. Genesis 6, verse 14. I'm sure you've read this before. God said to Noah, he said, Noah, make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shall pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length shall be 300 cubits, the breadth 50 cubits, the height 30 cubits. A window shalt thou make in the ark. In a cubit thou shalt finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. With lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. Now look, between verses 14 and verses 16, if you're paying attention, there's something significant that God does in his instructions to Noah. There's something very significant here. First of all, is it fair to say that Noah's example is relevant for God's people living before the end of time? Is that true, yes or no? Yeah, it's true. Well, how do we know that? Because Jesus said the day before his coming would be like whose day? 
like Noah's day. So it, it rightly follows that if the time before Jesus comes is going to be like Noah's day, we should look at Noah and the preparation that he made in order to be able to prepare for what's going to come. Okay, so having said that, think with me for a moment. In this list that God gave, is there something significant? Now, remember what we said, God does not give things randomly. It's, it's never arbitrary. Always there's deliberateness. I'm going to ask you to do something with me. Starting from verse 14, I want you to count how many unique instructions God gave to Noah. Look at verse 14. God says to Noah, make thee an ark of what? So could we say that was a unique instruction? Could we say that? Yes. Number one. Number two, God says, rooms shalt thou make where? In the ark. So that's the second thing that God said. In verse 14, the third thing God says, thou shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. So in verse 14, how many specific instructions did God give Noah in the building of the ark? How many? Three. Okay, look at verse 15. This is the fashion which thou shalt make of it. The length of the ark shall be how long? 300. Was that a unique instruction? Yes, God said make it 300, 300 cubits long, okay? The breadth of it would be how long? 50. And the height of it, how long? How high? 30. So do you notice in verse 15, there are another three specific instructions that are given. Do you see that? Look at verse 16 now. The Bible says, a window shalt thou make in the ark. So God said make a what? Window. So that's number seven. Number eight, God says, in a cubit shalt thou finish it above. So he tells him, make a window, and then he tells him where to put the window. Number nine, God says, a door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof. That's number what? Nine. And then he says, and you shall make it lower, second, and third stories. That's number 10. Now, I want you to think about that, because when God told Noah to build an ark, he gave Noah exactly 10 commands. Is that true? 10 instructions, isn't that right? Now, I want you to think about the implication of this because does it make sense that Noah had to follow those 10 instructions to make it from the old world to the new world? Is that true? Yeah, it's true. And if you think about it very carefully, God has given his people exactly 10 instructions on how we can prepare for the coming storm. Isn't that right? 10 instructions. What are those 10 instructions? The 10 commandments. And here's an interesting thing to consider. Let's say that Noah really didn't believe that the ark was coming. I'm sorry, the flood was coming. Let's just say he didn't really believe that was coming. And God says, look, I want you to make this ark out of gopher wood, okay? You know, if you do a little reading about the ark, the wood that was made out of, um, we're told that it was of a hardness similar to stone. So let's suppose that Noah said, you know what, this gopher wood is just too hard to work with. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it out of some of these, you know, these palm trees that are nearby here, okay? Uh, now, now, I want you to think about this. Would that ark have made it through that coming flood, yes or no? No, it wouldn't have. I don't know if you know this, palm trees don't float. Okay, they're not really trees, but anyway. So that wouldn't have worked. See, my point is that it took faith in God's word that the flood was coming in order for Noah to be able to obey all of God's instructions. Does it make sense that it also required, it takes faith in order to really keep God's commandments? Is that true, yes or no? And make no mistake, Noah was not saved because he kept all of those 10 instructions. We're told that 
It was angels that excelled in strength that were sent to guard that ark as it rode out the tempest during the flood. In the same way, we're not saved because we try, you know, to keep the Ten Commandments, but rather it is the grace of God given to those who, by faith, seek to follow God's will. Amen? Just to put things in perspective. (laughs) Okay, technique number six, I call this inversion. Uh, And I'd like to give you some examples of this. Look with me at John chapter 3, verse 27. John chapter 3, look with me at verse 27. And please notice what the Bible says here. John 3, verse 27, the Bible says, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. You see, sometimes you need another way to look at a passage in order to extract the meaning more clearly. And so what, I, what you can do is you can invert the meaning of the passage to maybe emphasize what it is really saying. So John says a man can receive how much? Nothing except it be given him from where? Heaven. If you invert that statement, I want you to think of it. If you invert that statement, Another way of saying the same truth would be everything that you have has been given to you by God in heaven. Is that true, yes or no? That's true. And that is the inversion of the statement given in John 3, verse 27. We might say it's a negative way of saying it, and then we've, we've made it into a positive statement. Try your hand at this one, Psalms 84, verse 11. This is a well-known passage. Psalms chapter 84, verse 11, the Bible says, For the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, I want you to think about this. If we're going to find the meaning of this passage more clearly, no good thing will he withhold from them uprightly. The inversion of that statement would be, to the righteous, God wants to bestow every good thing. Does that make sense? If he doesn't want to withhold any good thing from them that walk uprightly, the inverse of that is, to the righteous, God will bestow everything that is good in this life and in the life to come. Okay, try this one. Revelation 20 and verse 5, and we use this in our evangelistic series. I know most evangelists will use this to demonstrate the timing of the second resurrection. Revelation chapter 20, look at verse 5. The Bible says, but the rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Now look at that verse. The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. If we invert that statement, what is it saying? The rest of the dead lived not again until the thousand years were finished. Another way to say the same thing is at the end of the thousand years, there is another what? There's another resurrection. That's the truth that's brought out in this passage. Romans 5, look at verse 14. Romans chapter 5, look at verse 14. Notice Romans 5, 14 says, Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to who? Now let's pause right there. It says that death reigned from Adam to Moses. Can someone invert that statement for me and tell me what that would say if we were to invert that? What would it say? If death reigned from Adam to Moses, another way of saying the same thing would be what? After Moses, death no longer what? Reigned. Is that true, yes or no? 
Who was the first person ever resurrected from the dead? It was Moses. And this is one of the ways you can prove that. Because if death reigned from Adam to Moses, the inverse of that statement would be after Moses, death no longer reigned. All right. Daniel 11. Let me, let me go there with you. Daniel chapter 11, verse 33. Um, Daniel 11, verse 33 is an interesting passage because it is one of the only ways that I am aware of to demonstrate that the time of the end happened in 1798. Now, since this is going to be up on Audioverse, someone will probably end up correcting me, but as far as I know, this is one of the few passages in the Bible that help people understand when the time of the end began. The time of the end began in 1798. Well, how do we know that? Well, look at Daniel 11. Look at verse 33. It says, they that understand among the people shall instruct many. Yet they shall fall by the sword, by flame, by captivity, and by spoil many days. Now let's pause here. In verse 33, are we talking about the righteous or the wicked? These are the righteous. Okay, these are the righteous. And the Bible predicts that the righteous would go through a period of what? Persecution. Can you see that in verse 33? It says that they shall go through Uh, all these things, the sword, flame, captivity, and spoil. Verse 34 says, Now when they shall fall, they shall be helping with a little help. But many shall cleave to them with flatteries. Verse 35, And some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white, even to the what time? To the time of the end. Because it is yet for a time appointed. Now I want you to think about this carefully. Verse 33 describes a period of persecution. And verse 35 describes why that persecution is allowed. It's to purge God's people. But do you notice that they are being persecuted even until the time of the what? The time of the end, which implies that after the time of the end, they are no longer being what? Persecuted. Which gives us a point at which we can understand when the time of the end begins, because we know that the papal persecution, which is the period that's being described here, it ended around what time? 1798. Now, if you study history, you'll discover it ended a little before that, which is what's mentioned when it says that they shall be helping with a little help. We know that the persecution of the papacy ended slightly prior to 1798. But again, this verse gives us the understanding of that time period by inverting the truth that's being brought out in this passage. Okay, so I'm going to skip this last example for sake of time. Technique number seven, culture. Now, I have to tell you that when some of these things that I'm giving you are techniques that you can use just with your Bible and maybe a concordance. But some of these things, like this one that I'm about to share, it really helps if you have a good Bible commentary. And, you know, in our electronic age, I'm sure many of you have the SD Bible commentary on your computer. Uh, and if, you know, there are other good commentaries like Adam Clark's, there's a lot of great commentaries out there that you can get. But anyway, you, of course, remember the 10 plagues that were sent upon Egypt. And, you know, we can just list these here. What's interesting about each of the plagues that it was given is that when you read this in the Bible account, we often think, okay, here were some terrible things that God rained down upon the Egyptians, you know, lice and flies and all of these things. 
But when you really understand a little bit about why the culture of the Egyptians, it opens up a new avenue. Because next to each of these plagues is the names of the Egyptian gods that the specific plagues were designed to humiliate. In other words, like some of these were the gods of the harvest, okay, and the god of the river. And all of these different gods through each of the plagues was being shown to be inept and helpless and really, of course, non-existent. And so by giving each of the plagues in the way that God did, it was an affront, it was a way to humiliate these Egyptian gods and to demonstrate God's power over the heathen deities. And that wouldn't be clear unless you understood a little bit more about the Egyptian uh, culture. Why did, God, why did Elijah ask the prophets of Baal to meet him at Mount Carmel? Historians tell us that Mount Carmel was the home, considered to be the home of the god of Baal. So Elijah, in having this contest on Mount Carmel, was bringing the fight into their home territory, so to speak, okay? It was a way of bringing it to a, a very obvious ending. Why did Boaz get a shoe? Do you remember this? When Boaz met with the other leaders at the gate and then the other kinsmen get, took off his shoe, do you remember that? That was a custom of the day. By relinquishing one's shoe, it was a tradition or a custom that one was forfeiting his right to walk on the property that he had. So here was a custom that, that was going on. Why did Elisha ask Elijah for a double portion? Well, historians tell us, and, and we know this from the Bible, that a double portion was often allotted to the firstborn. So Elisha was not saying to Elijah, I want to be twice as good as you. He, what he was saying was, I am your spiritual firstborn, and I'm asking for the double portion spiritually that should be mine as your spiritual firstborn. Okay, well, uh, <clears throat> this is for sake of time. Do you remember the story where there's a man that was <clears throat> asked to follow Jesus, and the man said, let me first go and bury my father. Do you remember that? That's interesting because when I first read that and I studied that, I thought, here was a man that Jesus called whose father had just died. Do you know that that expression, let me go bury my father? Historians say that in that time, it was an expression that meant, let me wait until I receive my father's inheritance and then I'll follow you. So what he was saying was, Wait, uh, let me wait until I'm financially situated, and then I'll follow you. And friends, we know that that, that never works, okay? Uh, why, did, why does God say, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated? You know, the word hate in the Bible doesn't always mean, you know, this, uh, this um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Hate doesn't necessarily mean what we think it to mean as far as, you know, a revulsion or, you know, this animosity towards. Hate in this particular context is similar to the idea that Jesus said, except a man hate not his father and his mother and his brother. So in the idea, it's that Jacob he loved and he has loved Esau less simply because Esau did not reach out to him as Jacob did. And so these passages can be unlocked, so to speak, when we just do a little bit of investigation into the cultural background of why these things were said the way that they were said. Okay, 
Now, technique number eight is quotations. And I have to say, this one is really, to me, has helped me a, a tremendous deal. For sake of time, I'm going to ask you to open with me to Malachi 4. Malachi chapter 4, look with me at verse 5. <coughs> Malachi 4, verse 5. The Bible says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Verse 6, And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Now let's pause here for a moment. How many of you have heard Malachi 4, 5, and 6 being used or preached about describing an end-time movement where God will restore families back together again? Have you heard that being preached? I've heard that. The reality is that in Malachi 4, verses 5 and 6, when we look at the way the Bible explains this passage, it has nothing to do with a restoration of the family, but rather, look at how this is quoted by the angel in Luke chapter 1. Look with me there. Luke chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. Luke 1, verses 16 and 17. Notice here what... The Bible says, it says, And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of who? Elias. Now, where is the angel quoting this from? Where is he taking this from? This is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. So we know this is a scriptural quotation that he's doing. He shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elias to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Is that the same as Malachi, yes or no? Yeah, it's the same, right? But notice how it's different in the next part. And to turn the disobedient to the wisdom of the who? Just. Now, I want to ask you a question. The wisdom of the just there is another way of saying who? That's a description of who? The father, okay? That's a rephrasing of Malachi 6, 4 verse 6. That's a rephrasing of the, the word father, the wisdom of the just. That's God. But notice what it says about the children. Who are the children? And the who? The disobedient. So, friends, I want to ask you, according to the Bible, when the Bible explains or expounds on Malachi 4, 5, and 6, is this passage a passage that's describing an end-time movement of a restoration of the families? Is that what the Bible is saying here, yes or no? No. It's talking about turning God's people back to the heavenly Father. Is that clear, yes or no? So, you see, when the Bible quotes something, it's always, it's, 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 uh, it's very helpful to see how the Bible interprets what some of these prophecies were in the Old Testament. Um, I'm going to ask you to, for, in closing, to look at Galatians 4, verse 24, Galatians chapter 4, and look with me at verse 24. Notice what Paul does here. This is very interesting. Galatians 4, verse 24 Paul writes, which thing, oh, well, we should kind of back up here. Um, Let's back up to verse 22. For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondmaid and the other by a free woman. Now jump down with me to verse 24. Which things are a what? An allegory. Now, here's what's interesting. Was the story of Ishmael and Isaac, was it a real story, yes or no? Yeah, it was a real literal account. But Paul, 
as he describes those events, he says that they were an allegory. Now, when the Bible does this, it's letting us know that the events taking place in that story have typical significance. They have typological significance. And I'm going to talk about that this afternoon in the next session uh, as we talk about the features of Scripture, okay? Now, this ends the first part. As I said, the handout, we didn't have enough this morning for everyone. However, um, I will let you know of a way after this is all done, uh, this, after this next session, I'll let you know of a way that you can get more. And, uh, but for, to close this, let's, just, let's finish with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be able to study the Bible together. We pray that these simple techniques would make us better students of the Word of God and that as we study, as we, uh, as we feast upon this living bread, we would become more we would become better Christians and that we would be more effective in reaching the lost around us. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray, amen.